Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast-growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm your host, Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. Today's episode, really fun discussion about a topic that frankly, we probably don't talk enough about. Um, today's guest is Benny Rubin, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Senders, which is an email deliverability and sendability company. And so what better expert to have on to talk about all things email than Benny? In fact, you're going to hear a lot of his wisdom accumulated over the years, frankly, helping companies send tens of millions of emails. And they specialize in the B2B sector. So cold sales emails are his specialty and where he really you know, tunes a lot of his, his own conversations that we have during this interview. You're going to pull out of this interview a lot of those insights. Um, in fact, we, without a spoiler alert here, but we talk about the four elements of <clears throat> successful email landing in an inbox. We talk a lot about the game theory that goes into creating su successful email campaigns. We talk about kind of email in general and what it is and all the misconceptions about it. So <clears throat> this is a power packed episode and a very timely one too, because email deliverability is on the tip of everybody's tongue these days, especially with some of the latest um, Google and Microsoft changes that have been rolling out kind of through the industry. So without further ado, here's my guest, Benny Rubin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm your host, Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. Today's episode, really fun discussion about a topic that, frankly, we probably don't talk enough about. Today's guest is Benny Rubin, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Senders, which is an email deliverability and sendability company. And so what better expert to have on to talk about all things email than Benny? In fact, you're going to hear a lot of his wisdom accumulated over the years, frankly, helping companies send tens of millions of emails. And they specialize in the B2B sector. So cold sales emails are his specialty and where he really tunes a lot of his own conversations that we have during this interview. You're going to pull out of this interview a lot of those insights. In fact, we, without a spoiler alert here, but we talk about the four elements of <clears throat> successful email landing in an inbox. We talk a lot about the game theory that goes into creating su successful email campaigns. We talk about email in general and what it is and all the misconceptions about it. So... <clears throat> This is a power packed episode and a very timely one too, because email deliverability is on the tip of everybody's tongue these days, especially with some of the latest Google and Microsoft changes that have been rolling out through the industry. So without further ado, here's my guest, Benny Rubin. And we're back with Benny Rubin. Benny is the CEO at Senders. And so on this today's episode, we're going to go into probably everybody's favorite topic, email deliverability 
And oh uh, man, I love this topic. <laughs> yeah. So Benny, welcome, welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast. Hi everybody. Thanks for tuning in to go <laughs> deep and nerdy on the topic that you were talking about. Things that make people wake up in cold sweats. I think that this is one of them. It definitely is because I think there's a lot of hard science and black art associated yeah. with the concept. Am I yeah. off base in saying as much? No, I think it's a really fascinating industry. There are a few categories of things that used to only have to be worried about by very large enterprises and has creeped further and further. I see you have some gray hair, so I can safely say that you've been around for a little while. Um, I have some gray hairs too, but slightly less than yours, even though we very well may be around the same age. That's, that's a weird thing that happens. A little older, but ages converge at a certain point. But um, it used to be, if you were waking up now and thinking about email deliverability, you actually probably didn't have to think about it as much 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even six, seven years ago. Nope. And really when I started doing cold email, science had already been around. You guys were already crushing it then. Um, you didn't really have to think about it. Because one G Suite account could crank out 400 emails a day on day one of setting up the domain. It just right. wasn't even a thing, Yep, which is wild. So over the last five, six years, especially, it's gotten more and more constricted and more and more companies are getting having more and more problems. We saw people who don't have historical context, which I don't fault you for not having, folks that are under a certain age don't even know that pharma spam was a thing. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. They were sending like 50 to 80 billion emails a day or something. Yeah. So all these defensive mechanisms were put up to defend against these kinds of spam attacks that now the downstream ramifications are a seed stage startup saying, what the heck is going on? How come I can't get these emails sent and delivered? This is so weird. Viagra pills, damn you. Yeah, seriously. That's wild. <laughs> There's a really good book actually about the pharma spam wars. By Cribs, I think his name is Cribs. Krebs, I can't remember. The security researcher, I think it's from the Wall Street Journal or something like that. It's actually a really fantastic read if you ever want to understand the roots of all these anti-spam mechanisms that were that are in place now that folks are contending with. It's pretty interesting. We can put it in the show notes. So that's a good tip. Yeah. But anyway, so email deliverability. I, I find it to be endlessly fascinating. What our, my team does is currently we back the B2B sending for I think as of Today, it's maybe 75 companies. So you can say that's a lot. You can say that's a little. Maybe by the time you listen to this, it'll be more. I'm not sure. Or fewer. That happens too. Yeah. We're, we're all, that happens. But on a fundamental level, we're sending millions and millions of, of cold emails. So we have a very wide and deep understanding of what is making sense and what's not making sense and what's actually affecting deliverability and what's not. And that fundamentally sets us apart because almost all of the people who are squawking on the internet about email deliverability are doing it for four or five companies, maybe a hundred thousand emails a month or something. Yeah. They're not really in like the 10, 20, 30 million emails a month range, which might make you say, this guy's a spammer, but that's a little bit neither here nor there. When you understand yeah. that the companies that we're sending are just legitimate B2B companies. Let's start with the basics. Yeah. What do you think that the world should know, especially cold email practitioners, yeah, about any email getting into any inbox? That's a fascinating question. 
I think there's a lot that you should know. You should spend a moment to understand what email actually is. I think that it's easy to see email like a YouTube account or an Instagram account or like a LinkedIn account where you go, LinkedIn allows you to send a certain number of messages. When you sent too many, they send you a notice that says you've sent too many. You cannot send anymore for the next 24 hours or something like that. But because email itself is an open protocol that has a bunch of things stacked on top of it, which make it work. And nobody owns email at all, even though people have market share in the receiving side of emails or the sending side of emails that are obviously influential. It's an open protocol, which means that almost all of the rules, air quote rules, and the heuristics that people talk about, oh, you should only send X number of emails per day per this, per that, they're just not factually accurate. And and B2B senders, which I assume most of your listeners are B2B oriented, we have a very different view of email than B2C senders. For sure. Right? So what's happening is folks are, I guess what they're doing is conflating and there's mixing up email on the whole and B2B email, mm-hmm. which really requires separating out. And they're bundling up, they're equating email with Google Workspace or email with Microsoft 365, ignoring all the parts and pieces that come together to make Google Workspace an email provider. And the reason why that's important is if you separate out those elements, you start to understand what Google is trying to protect by limiting the amount of your sending, what Google is trying to protect by putting some of your emails into spam, what underlying mechanisms are in place that are causing that? What is email warming? Why is it so popular? What's it actually doing? It's not magic. What is it? What's happening? So I think all these things, they unravel, and then you end up with a pretty interesting little slice of internet infrastructure that then you have to reform in the way that you need it to function for your business goals. Yep. And the business goals for anyone in sales are pretty obvious around getting to awareness in it and yeah. engagement. Um, but let's go back to some of the ideas that, that you just threw out there, especially around sure. email being an open protocol. Yeah. Because I think that the vast majority of the world does think of, especially in the B2B space, Google and Microsoft being like the yeah. one-two punch of market share dominance. And it's my understanding that both of them have actually ab- adopted a lot of the original protocols largely building upon the shoulders of the Yahoo giant, if you will, at some point in the past, and really tuning a lot of their own algorithms for what constitutes an email that will get into their business users and licensees. It's a better way of putting it and what won't. Yeah. I think, sure. That's a fair way to say it, that they have, they have a lot of influence over what gets delivered and what doesn't get delivered. But I would argue that almost all B2B senders, at least the ones that are listening to this, which means that they're handsome, they're smart, they're all the great things. We're not talking about folks that are running a real estate scam. We're not talking about folks that are doing some sort of pump and dump where they're trying to get folks to buy the next weird coin that they've minted or something. We're talking about legitimate business senders where they have a 
agency style business where they have a SaaS platform or something. There is no reason why those emails should be going to spam. There just isn't. And the reason why I say there just isn't is assuming that all the fundamentals are in place, there is no law in the United States. And if you're a lawyer, you can fact check me on this, but the Federal Trade Commission, which regulates these things, publishes guidance. The guidance basically says B2B unsolicited cold email or whatever you want to call it is allowed to be done. Yep. If it follows certain basic guidelines, which I think everyone should read and generally understand. So in other words, there's no legitimate reason why Google would be filtering out your emails. Right. So what we're really looking at is what are you doing by accident or what have you not, what fundamentals are not in place that are causing Google or, and or Microsoft or whoever to say, maybe we shouldn't deliver this. But I think most B2B senders don't actually have a deliverability problem. They have a sendability problem. Mm. And the sendability problem is they're using the wrong uh, tool sets to do their outbound, or they're trying to send too many emails for the infrastructure that they're using. Got it. And well, that is know, a, that's a slightly different problem. It is, but it's definitely one that I want to tackle. Maybe now is, is a good time. Yeah, talk about, sure. Because I tend to think very similar to you, which is as a marketer, yeah. CMO for quite a number of years here, and having worked in the B2C side of the house early in my career, where you send half a million emails in a flash and you don't even think about it. Yeah. yeah. And the most common address name that you put on those emails is no reply at. Yeah. <laughs> so like you're practicing the marketing of what I call CPM marketing, true CPM marketing around thinking of big audiences. Cause you're yeah. writing to 5,000 people at a time or 50,000 people at a time. Yeah. As easily as your B2B is different because it's all about one-to-one. -one. Yep. This idea that I'm sending an email from one person to one person. It's a yeah. feature, not a bug of the communication, what should be in the messaging, what should be part of one's attack plan or strategy. Yeah. But So let's peel that onion back and talk about sendability with that as the construct. Sure. I think you're bringing up some interesting and very fundamental truths that this is going to sound loaded in a way that I don't intend. Your emails just might suck but there's no one dimension that emails get improved by. Mm. Does that mean, you, you understand what I yes, mean? Yes, I do. So on a very basic level, there are industries and scenarios where hyper-customization really do move the needle, but there are many cases where that isn't the parameter by which things improve. There are instances where the offer, air quotes offer, moves the needle, and there are other instances where no, the lack of offer is the thing that will move the needle. Yeah. It's probably one of the only places in the universe where if you didn't, if you don't test it, you don't know, think about it. Can you imagine a marketer, just a regular marketer? And you said, the first thing to test is put up the biggest CTA button possible on the front of the website. And the next thing we're going to test is no CTA button, but that's how cold email can be. Yeah. We've seen clients have tremendous success with well, and, and people who listen to this are going to be like, this guy's saying it shouldn't have a call to action. Maybe not. We've seen people have huge success with no, no need to reply to this. 
email just want us to be on your radar. And that produces the best results that they've ever seen. Because some industries, some vibes, some places, some zones of the economy, the lightest touch is the thing. Yep. We've seen people succeed wildly with the most complex two or three or even four part call to action. Right. We have three calls to action in a row. Choose your own adventure. And that produces the best results. Would you be open to having a meeting? Or I'm happy to send over a fact sheet that goes into more details. Alternately, I can send over a video. And it's what marketer would recommend this. But you find that in cold email land, if you know your target market and people might reply fact sheet, send over the fact sheet. Someone might be like, I'll watch a video. Someone might be like, sure, pick a time in my calendar. Let's chat. Yep. So it's anyway, what I'm saying is that we're oftentimes folks are looking at the sendability side and saying, I should just need to send more emails. And some people look at the sendability side and they say, I really need to customize more. And some people look at the sendability side and they say, I need to customize far less and try more things. At the end of the day, any or all of those things is going to produce a, a result for you, whether good or bad. And then the dials and switches you turn are based on those three parameters. And when client, this is, comes back to a pitch for my own company. So self-promo alert, almost all the companies that we work with have already figured out a cold email motion that works really well at a low volume. They've already figured out, hey, if we do a really light CTA or a really strong one or this kind of CTA or that kind of CTA, it works really well. And we get one, two, three, four, five percent interested reply rates. Then they come to us and they say, hey, we just need to do this at a higher volume. And then at that point, you're like, cool, sendability is your problem. How are you going to get a higher volume of emails out across more reps or fewer reps or whatever it is, get into the inbox and sustain that over time to make the sales motion work? And then you get into this other realm where you come back to the things we talked about earlier, which is what, what my team does is we separate out all the elements of email and then we re we bring it all together in a way that can support the sending volume that you really need to support your business, well, which is different. Are you currently looking at when you're deconstructing? Sure. There are four elements that we look at. There's domains, which there's a lot of nuance in domains, a lot more nuance than Folks typically would, folks don't want me to talk, start talking about domains, but we can if you want. I the think there's interest about, about domain, yeah. especially when you just buy a domain, how sure. new it is, the IP block sure. that it's sitting on, those types of things, right? Yeah, for sure. There's a bunch of there, the bunch there. So we have domains, which includes subdomains and other elements. You have IP addresses, which it's hard for, it's hard to, if you think about what an IP address kind of is, if you make a physical analogy with it, it's which mailbox you drop the letter off at, Yeah. which, which doesn't seem like it would matter because it doesn't really matter so much in the physical world, but it really matters in the world because bad actors drop off emails at bad post boxes <laughs> and the good ones do it in good post boxes. Right. You can imagine, yeah, you can imagine there was one particular ma- in neighborhood that was responsible for all of the mail fraud for the country. Probably there'd be a police officer standing near that mailbox, like writing down who dropped a letter off there. That's basically what IP addresses can represent in this space. So we have domains and we have IP addresses. Then we have DNS, 
SPF, DMARC, DCAM, other elements of your DNS records. So what is going on with your DNS is everything how it should be. And then the last element is all of the other stuff. I know it sounds like a lot, but what's the spacing of the emails you're sending? What's the volume? What's what's the intervals of the send? Do the emails contain any things sort of spammy? Are these really geared towards things that support deliverability or hurt deliverability? All the stuff therein. That's the sort of fourth bucket. Domains, IPs, DNS, and then all the stuff. Is it? So as a person who just wants to understand this better, or as I, as someone might say to chat GPT, explain it like a sixth grader would understand. One through three sound very black and white and very, there can be an established protocol and a deep understanding of what the right domain, the right IP address, or at least understanding the, where those bad mailboxes are, what DNS to, to be running, how to set up and configure SPF, yeah. DMARC, and DCAM. But yeah. then the bucket four is a little bit more of what I was alluding to earlier around that black yeah. art, is it not? Or do you think of it hard and fast, which is maybe more interesting? There's certain rules of the road that when violated become... Here's the thing. I think that where most folks on these kinds of sales podcasts, things get into trouble is they start to come up with magic formulas. Okay. I'm not going to ask how many clients science has, because I don't know if you publish that information, but we're probably talking about thousands and thousands of simultaneously running variants of emails for, from different kinds of companies with different kinds of value propositions to different kinds of people. And anyone that could say the magic rule is always make sure you is not in the, they're, they're, they tend to be smaller players. Yeah. They tend to be smaller players, not smaller in any dimension other than they've seen fewer things that work and don't work. There's a story I, I like to tell because I think it's funny. I was working with a financial services related firm and we were doing cold emails and I was helping at that point, I was helping involved in writing emails and deliverability and everything. And one of the financial advisors said, can I write the next email without your input to, to try it? And I said, sure, of course, because you always want to let the client write some emails too. And why not? It was one of the worst emails I'd ever seen in my entire life. It started with, by way of introduction, and it was just weird. It yeah. outperformed any of the really slick, cool emails that were cutting edge at the moment. Interesting. So then you start to say, okay, why? And at the end of the day, it's very possible that the people listening to this who run companies actually know their target market pretty well. Yeah. Probably better than the guy that says, oh, this is the, or girl or whoever says, this is the template that, that crushes or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. So I think if you're going to do basic stuff, it's just like, is there anything misleading about your email? Stop that. Okay. <laughs> is there anything confusing about your email? Is it confounding? Is there weird grammar in it? Is it like people say, oh, shorter is better. No, I'm sorry. I can show you some, and I'm sure you have this too. You can see examples of emails that are really long that perform really well. Why? Yeah. Sometimes folks you're emailing have to undergo a self-convincing process to overcome the rejection that presses in their brain when they get a cold email. 
especially if they're busy. I'm mm. talking about people that are busy. I'm not even talking about C-suite being busy. We know that C-suite folks are oftentimes the least busy because they need open office hours for their team and things like that. But folks that are busy, they get an email that's compelling. They really don't want to be interested. They don't actually want another vendor on their list, even though you know what I'm feeling, yeah. Eric, where you're just I, like, I do. Ooh, they, they got me. Oh, got, so you got me. Yeah. In that moment, sometimes a longer email that has a little bit more can catalyze the response of the person to go, okay, I've invested a little bit in understanding this. I've vetted it a few more layers in my brain. Okay, I'll reply to this and with interest. And if it's a very short email, it's very easy to go, ooh, that's interesting, eh, and move on. So sometimes longer, and we're talking two or three seconds longer, really, we're not talking about anything, can work better. If a product or service is complex and requires explanation, yeah. you better explain it because you're not going to win with mystery. You remember you used to be able to win with mystery. Remember that, Eric? You I could do. be mysterious in a cold email and people were like, tell me more. <laughs> that I think you can like, still win with mystery, but it's got to be executed so? correctly. You know what I mean? Mm. It's got to be, again, with that deeper understanding of the personas that are going to be reading it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, what I would say is the real, it seems to me that the real magic is the writer of the email, whether it's a client or an agency or someone really trying to game theory, what goes on in the head of the person that they're emailing. Right. And just literally poking holes in it. For example, when people say something like, can I share over a, a, a report that we put together? That's, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be given homework. Yeah. I, that's right? the worst habit I find, especially on the recipient side, which I've been a lot of <laughs> yeah but the the opposite of this is if you create urgency around the report like for example if you pull out two really interesting points in the report right. or you say this is a great report to pass to your operations team or something maybe there's a world where you could turn interest in a report into an interested reply yeah. but again you're gaming out the system being like does this person want homework for me does this person want to talk with me what is the, the minimum way that this person could express interest without having to buy into anything? What is what is? Right. You end up in a really interesting headspace where you start to poke holes in it and you start to tweak words and you start to say, is there another way I could say this simpler? Or all these things are really healthy. And I, I oftentimes don't, I find that clients that come to us or maybe the ones, same ones that come to you that say, this is the email we want to try you realize that it's a nice email. It's written very well. It just hasn't been interrogated. Yeah. It might've been tested. And sometimes you win with emails that, like I said, that are actually really bad. But to go back to that story, what the learning from that is, you never really know until it's tested. That's a weak conclusion. The true conclusion is in this woman, she was a woman, in this woman's soul, the reason why she, as a financial advisor in this scenario, resonated is because the people that she was emailing wanted a financial advisor that was similar to her. So that's why as a CMO, if you're emailing CMOs and you do it in the most CMO way, oftentimes it, it works. Yep. Even if it's a little bit of a weird thing. If you're just like, you're like hey, Tom, I'm CMO over at Science. You may have never heard of us, but we've been in the Inc. 5000 and we're really fast growing. I'm, I 
am reaching out to CMOs because recently we've been seeing more CMOs come through to work with us, even though this seems like a sales thing, would you be open to learning more? They're going to be like, he's a peer, he's a CMO. They're not going to be interrogating it line for line in the same exact way as if it's like a junior SDR or something. It's so funny you, know? you mentioned that. And I deigned to even give the secret away. Oh, but no. <laughs> Secrets. One of, the, one of the campaigns that was most successful that we've ever run did have me as the signatory. And it was actually me speaking extremely bluntly in order to create backlink relationships. So any CMO out there knows that there's a gazillion and one people wanting backlinks, (laughs) wanting or a guest post or some sort of link-based relationship. Yeah. So you just said, I'm the CMO at, at Science we're are we rank for this and these and I'd love to, yeah like we I'd love to get our link on your side and your link on my side can we make that happen and people are like sure it was even more blunt than that that oh. the actual wordsmithing and, and I won't give it all away but like no, don't was it. was basically like here's our domain authority here's yours this would be a good deal for you <laughs> literally spelling it out that cleanly and yeah. obviously so I find this really interesting that what we're really talking about with cold email, I'm assuming that your product and service, not you, but the person listening, your product and service is legitimate. You have clients, you have customers. You're not doing weird Hail Mary smokescreen emails. Like you're actually yep. like, hey, we have customers and clients. The We see a lot of emails that don't say the aha. They, right? they, like, they forget like, that. Big they point. hint at it. But you, you, if you were thinking about science or something and you guys have the best data out there, yeah. You might be like, when we, when we, if, if you want to see a demo of the product, I will show you like this thing and you actually describe it, which most VPs of sales go, wow, or something like that. Like you actually just present that. So then they're like, yeah, I'd be open to seeing that thing. That's interesting for this purpose. You know, right. then the other thing that we're seeing work a lot these days, and, and I don't, for me, these aren't even secrets. There's not even like any secret to it, which is. Focusing on very human things. Mm. So for example, what we found, I won't give away any names because I think it's unfair to the clients of mine that are just doing amazing work. They might have a non-core asset for their business. For example, they might have a small community of finance leaders that they've always had. And they have maybe a little link to it on the website or something. And maybe they do a roundtable discussion with that crew once a month. But even though their platform is something way more complicated and they'd love to have sales folks do demos for, the human element of being like, you're VP of finance. Like we, I'd love, would you be interested in maybe joining our community? Like we have finance leaders from these seven companies. And like we meet once a month and we just do a roundtable and everyone speaks for two, three minutes and we vibe with each other. And that might get so much more interested replies because it literally is just human and folks like, yeah, sure. I'd be interested in that. Yeah. The other thing that, that we're seeing work more and more these days, and maybe this is a sign of the times and maybe this is like a, a secret thing that maybe I shouldn't be saying, I don't know, is taking your call to action, whatever you desire to be, and really taking a step back further. What I mean is, this sounds silly to say it out loud, 
but almost asking for permission to ask for permission. Mm. Thinking about this really as like a, as a consent type thing. So an example of that would be that in the example I just said, as you say something like, would you be open to being invited to our CMO roundtable, Eric? We, we haven't set the date for the next one, but I'd love to invite you if you're open to it. You as a CMO, you're busy. You got work and life to do. It's possible that they might be Northern European and they're going to put on your calendar at 4 a.m. And you're going to not, you're not going to go, right? But you're more willing to say, sure, I'd be open to being invited than actually committing to anything. But I think that thinking, you can extend that further. Some people, they are interested, but they don't want to see a demo. Okay. That's why you come up with CTAs that are like, do you think there's someone on your team who might benefit from actually doing a demo with us? Yeah. Or I'm happy to send over a a video recording that you could see or something like that. You're like, oh, this is really soft. This is really, because I think um, for the most part, something is changing in the culture and people think like these sales guys are so aggressive. These sales, I can't deal with the sales call with this person who's going to email me seven times in a row anyway. So you're getting a little bit more sensitive with the way you phrase things, which you can, and the people listening, this can interpret however they want. You might say, Benny, you're totally wrong. Like it makes sense to go straight for the, do you have 20 minutes to do a call that works all day long, which I would say, keep doing it if it was working for you. Yeah. I think the immediate thing that popped into my mind as you were saying that is the success that, that we've seen in an ABM style campaigns, where if you know your buyers and their buyer's journey especially how they behave in the four walls you don't occupy. So that if there's a natural way to kickstart the ball rolling from high title, pushing to low or Mm. lower, and you make it easy in the email to do exactly that, like works like a charm because you've just dotted a few I's and crossed a few T's for the people that will receive the email and go, yeah, that's what I would have done anyways. I need. Yeah. You're saying like, if you had a junior employee named Barbara and be like, Hey Eric, do you think this might be interesting to Barbara? Who's your yeah. head of RevOps or something? You might, you might be like, yeah, it could be interesting to Barbara. So you've already emailed Barbara, Barbara ignored you, but that's okay. Cause now it comes from Eric and Eric's like, Hey Barbara, maybe check out this platform. Exactly. And then you win because you did the, in this case, this is customization that would work in your scenario. And it's also not creepy, right? Because nope. you're using your own data to surface other people, which is a good representation of the science product as well. Like you use the dots connect, which is very different from as your sons into baseball, (laughs) right? Which is, which is literally the kinds of things that we're seeing, uh, people try to do in many cases. Yeah. It's like they misinterpret what personalization actually means. I actually get some, you get them too. We all get them, but I think we can all laugh about them, but I've gotten some really funny ones. Like I got one at the height of Trump insanity. This isn't a political statement, just like when Trump was like all the news everywhere, like in the run up to the election. And he had just had dinner with Mitt Romney at John George in Trump Tower. And I got an an email from someone, a cold email that said, "Uh, I'm planning a trip to New York soon. And on my list of places that I've always wanted to go is John George. And it was really funny to me because obviously they pulled a list of the most famous restaurants in New York. Yeah. Nobody has ever said in the history of time, I can't, I like John George's is the restaurant that I want to go in New York city. Cause that's just not, that's unless you were like, I'm a French food fanatic and I've always wanted it. It's just weird. 
to send to me like in Brooklyn with like my unshaven face. Like you want to go to a five-star, like a Michelin three-star restaurant or whatever. And then it was right after this incident. I was just like, what does this, what is this person trying to say? Is this a weird political thing? Are they trying to like, I was like, this is so strange. But you get those all the time. People are like, have you ever, there's a pizza place near your office that looks interesting. It's called Ray's Best Pizza. And you're like, okay, (laughs) like, what do you like? The 99 pizzas, the slice place around the corner. That's like, why would you like, what is going on here? So I think that, (laughs) I think that folks get a little, they get a little excited about what's possible and they don't actually just say, is this really resonating in, in the way that I need or wanted to? And then what we find is that the folks who really crush it are the ones that figured out almost like a fundamental, I always, I always say it's like, they figured out what is catnip to the person that they're emailing. Yeah. And there are great examples. For example, we found that if you're sending to selling things to visual folks, creative directors, designers, if you ask them if they'd like to see something visual permission, oftentimes they're probably sure. Yep. Would you be open to seeing my portfolio? And the third example is one that was a health tech company, it's not dissimilar to yours. But we said, sure, I'll, I'll have a look. And that's a success, especially if you have proper sales tooling in place to reply to the email very well. And you know how to transition that into a more proactive conversation with many sales orgs don't do. They know how to get a yes, but they don't know how to get it to the next step, which is a different set of musculature, but you find like what's catnip for that org. So then if you work backwards, what you find is on that fourth element, your DNS is aligned. You're sending from email infrastructure, whether it's Google or whatever you're sending from at a volume that doesn't violate their policies, which is basically two emails or five emails or 50 emails or 200 or 500, depending on the age of your domain, all these things that you can't control. And your domains are in good standing and they're healthy and you're not doing anything. You're not using a domain that was previously abused and all these things. And your DNS rankings are perfect with SPF, DMRT, all this technical stuff. Then you get to the really fun stuff. And are you loading it up with email links that have redirects in them? Are you putting weird attachments to the email? Are you doing all these things that just obviously inhibit um, normal behavior of, of email. Then you start to get to the creative side where you're just trying to figure out like, what is the thing that actually motivates these folks I'm trying to email? Yeah. And, and we, my team, just for the record, we spend, let's see, I don't know probably 75% of our time, effort, energy, and clients only rely on us for the first three things anyway. We give some advice on the fourth stuff, but that's not really our strength. Our strength is domains, DNS, IPs, and that whole side of the puzzle. What do you like to direct your client's attention to once they've engaged with you and presumably they're trying to get to a greater volume, they're trying to scale... They got something that works, as you said, at low volumes, and now they're trying to move to higher. What are the dashboards, the KPIs? What do you like to direct people's attention to, to show them? You're not going to like what I have to say. As a CMO, you're you're not going to like it. Give it to me. Okay. So the reason why you're not going to like it is very simple. The way that senders itself functions and the role that we fulfill for the currently 75 or whatever companies that engage with us on a month, our concurrent clients is, this is where the rabbit hole ends. 
we're not giving them dashboards to scrutinize mm-hmm. anything. They don't need another dashboard to look at. What they need is, this is famous last words, what they need, like I know exactly what they need. What they benefit from the most is these are the guys. Oh, deliverability question? Yeah, we got guys for that. Oh, or we, we need to add a new SDR and we want to make sure that person understands what's been done and how to not break things. Chat with the senders, guys. They'll do. Oh, we have a new CMO who joined and they want to know everything that's going on. Great. We'll explain to them exactly what we're doing, what IP addresses are in play, what subdomains are being used, what the history of them are. They're not really, what's the login for the senders dashboard again? And what are you going to find in that dashboard? Like most of the people that we work with don't know how to rotate IP addresses anyway. So they don't know how to solve these things. So we actually take on the role as if we're the place where the questions stop. I I get that. And let me rephrase the question. Sure. Are there KPIs? You're trying to say I misinterpret your question? (laughs) I think this is more interesting. Impossible. Impossible. (laughs) For the company that maybe didn't hire senders, but wants to still do high... Sure. Higher volume than they're currently doing today. The simple answer would be like, hey, if I have greater open rates, theoretically, I'm doing more right on the suitability deliverability. It's a not, it's an imperfect thing, but sure, you could use that as a measure. Yeah. I'm just wondering what you guide clients on thinking about in the world of before and after. Sure. Someone like Centers comes on the scene to embrace higher volumes. Sure. So it's really important for everyone to understand that deliverability on a fundamental level and almost every single level is a ratio game. It's a ratio phenomenon. So any way that you're gathering information, plus or minus 20% for all the stuff that comes in can actually help you understand and get a clear picture of where you are. And that means that if you're scaling up in volume exponentially, you're likely going to be inviting exponential problems. And if you're scaling up linearly, you're probably not going to be inviting crazy problems. In other words, if you have two reps that are each sending 200 emails a day, and that's going fine. And you add a third rep, you've added 200 now to 600 emails per day. Maybe that's too abrupt of a change. One rep flicks their machine on for the first time and starts sending. So maybe you should think about warming that person for email, for cold email for a couple of weeks, pure fake traffic, which basically is what email is. It's basically like bot traffic. And mm-hmm. then maybe when they start emailing, you should only do five emails the first day and then 10 emails the second day and then 15. So you need more room and more leeway. So every single additional day, you're not messing with the current ratio more, right? It's, I'm going to get fit and they go to the gym for four hours and then they're sore for three days. And you're like that, maybe you should start slow. Yeah. So folks don't think about it, but starting slow can mean salting your email traffic with more warming traffic from MailReach or Warmy or a great warming tool, which is basically just a ratio manipulation tool. Mm-hmm. It could be on ramping up your reps. You say, Hey, the first month of SDR work, you're actually going to only do customized email and you're going to do right. Every single one's going to be looked at by your supervisor and it's going to be sent out by hand. Then week three, you're going to get your outreach.io account, your science account. If you, I don't know if you guys actually provide that service, your Apollo.io account. And now we're going to do automated emails with you, but the first day you're only going to send five. 
And then the next day you're going to send 10 next year. So you actually think about this in terms of ratio impact on a day-to-day 20 rolling 24 hour period, you will inevitably be able to get to higher volumes of email much safer than the rush to get volume. Now, Eric, you and I that know that almost all the problems in the whole world could, could be solved by people being a little bit more patient <laughs> and understanding. So it's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow in a sense. That's why you as a CMO and the people who are listening who are leaders, what you have to do is bake in the methodical on-ramp into your sales training, your sales process. You need to swim up the river and or I guess it's a downstream, I don't know, upstream, downstream, whatever, but you need to say, okay, how can we make this a benefit? Not, I can't believe we have to start slow. This Benny guy said, we need to start slow and start to say, how's this going to result in something much better for us? Right. What happens is by week three, this person is more on point and they've done different things and they've experimented and they've seen this or that. And there's benefits to going slow also. Tell me about it. This is the expectation setting 101 for our entire business, right? Like people that want results on day one of you know, connecting yeah. up and partnering with science. And, and- well, the truth is that you do provide lots of value from doing. I'm sure people gain a tremendous amount of insight and value just from your onboarding process. Oh, for sure. Because yeah, your onboarding process is doing a lot of the ICP honing and understanding and asking tough questions that folks don't normally ask or it's vague in their brain and you're really putting it into focus, those things are really important. Even just getting the the basic concept of a sequence to be like, it's so common sense, but it's not because nobody thinks about it. And it's, oh, nine touches over three weeks means that I won't get to full ramp of total number of contacts until the same number of contacts are joining the sequence that are as are falling out, which means that it's a long, patient, methodical process. Yeah, a definition for sure. Exactly. So I think that that's <laughs> the advice that I would give to almost everyone who's thinking, even if they're going, Hey, I'm doing 200 emails a day down. I'd really love to double that. Yeah. Well, I think you'd be surprised that if you spend 200 days and add one additional email send per day, you probably would have far fewer problems than trying to accelerate that process. And I, this is just, you folks can listening can interpret this however they want. We as an organization stopped sending emails from Google or Microsoft in 2020. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of flack on LinkedIn. If you want to see some interesting hot takes on LinkedIn, people somehow take that as an affront, which I find to be entertaining. It's just perhaps Google Workspace is not the place for you to be doing these cold emails, trying to do it at a high volume right? Like maybe that's not the place, but we fundamentally remove that. And it's not, and people say, Oh, where do you move it to? And that's you're missing the, you're missing the, the point, right? You're missing the point because if you move off of Google, as we talked about at the top of this call, Google and Microsoft are a bundle of services. They're giving you a mailbox. They're giving you a, an IMAP server, basically. however you want to frame it. They're giving you IP addresses that you send from that you can't see that they choose. They're doing IP address maintenance for you that you can't see. They're doing all these things at the back end. So when you move off of Google in the way that we do it, now you have to know how to do IP address maintenance. You don't have to know how to properly warm subdomains and orchestrate a little bit more complicated technical process. But at the end of the day, you're relieved from the sending limits 
that Google or Microsoft place on you. So that was a decision that we made in 2020 was just like, we don't do sending from Google and Microsoft. We do it a little bit more raw and that gives us more flexibility and also oftentimes results in being able to do a much higher volume with way more control. Yeah. So that's what you get. And that's why people come to us and they're like, how can you charge this much money just to help send emails? There's a lot going on here. We don't even people, charge that much money, but people that need to learn the hard way that when you try to scale and you're spinning up new email inboxes with either Google or Microsoft, and you wonder why am I on this IP address block? And you have that thought like, oh, because they're not giving the best addresses to the newest. Microsoft basically, I think they recently, they even published that. They said, we'll let you send all the emails you want, but we'll move you to crap IP pools or something like yeah. that. It's, yeah. Google's a little bit different because what Google seems to be doing is they suspend your account rather than demote you to poor IP mm. blocks. Microsoft, I seem to remember, used to parrot the mantra, maybe I'm misremembering it, that you had to earn your way out of the IP address ghetto. I, I believe it. That would not surprise me even a little bit. It's a really wild and fascinating world. I think that at the end of the day, most of the orgs that we work with are, like I said, they want the rabbit hole to end. They don't want their team doing this. They don't want, it, it's just one of these things where they're like, cool, we're, we don't want to have to deal with this. We just want to be able to send emails. But my, on a fundamental level, there's a reason why we have 75 clients, not like 75,000 clients. Right. Because we are consulting. Fun. We provide infrastructure, but we're basically consulting. We care a lot about every client, their success, their particular email scenarios. But also, most organizations don't need to send emails at the volumes that all of our clients need to send, which basically is like 400 to 4,000 emails per day. Mm -hmm. and, and again, we're talking about folks with very large ICPs. Have Some of them have very refined sales processes cold email is one element of it. They might even be engaging with a company like science on their key account outreach. And they might say, we have a company like science or science working on our top 1000 accounts. Yeah. And then we have 45,000 accounts that aren't that important to us, but we'd still like to reach out to. And then they engage with someone like for the volume. And maybe with, I don't know what the stats are, but maybe with a very careful SDR style approach, you might get two, three, four, five, six, seven percent interested reply rates. And maybe you, they're building a wholesale process for that other 45,000 with sub 1% interested reply rates. But that's okay. Yeah. Because they're using the right tool for the right job. And they're not saying, because if you're doing 800 emails a day, it's anyone that can do even basic arithmetic knows if you have. 800 people in your target audience and you've ramped up to 800 emails per day, you're going to finish that ICP in a week or two. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's not, that's not the right tool for the job. You should be more methodical and more step-by-step -step oriented and more multimodal in terms of, are you doing email? Are you starting with email? Are you starting with a phone call? Are you going to do a voicemail drop? Are you going to leave a voicemail? Are you going to LinkedIn message them? Are you going to invite them to something? Are you going to do a kind of email that's only that only could be sent to that one person. Like we're not even talking about merge tags and stuff. We're talking about, hi, Eric, I watched three or four episodes of your podcast. And this is something I really appreciate about the way that you conduct your interviews. 
we make software that does this or that. And I'd love to see if this could be a benefit to science. I understand that you're probably not the contact person to do it. I just emailed you because I watched your podcast recently. That's only for you. But I'm not saying that's what Senders does at all. That's right. what good, really good SDRing can do. And yeah. you just can't do that if you're like, we have 40,000 VPs of finance in the world that we'd love to know about our platform. You use that for the 500 to 1,000 VPs of finance that are VPs of finance for community banks that have over $450 million in assets that are in these 17 states. You have to do the, the, the homework for those. So it's just yeah. not really for everyone. Totally get that. And I agree wholeheartedly with that basically segmentation strategy you just laid out. <laughs> yeah. The segment, the good old segmentation, which honestly, a lot of founders are not equipped to do on their own. I even find it with my own company, like my own org. I'm always like, do I really want to do deep segmentation or do I want to be focused more on inbound or do I want to... Do I need to chase folks? Do I not need to chase folks? What is the modality of my team? What is the way that I want my sales process to flow? It's not obvious. And there's not one size fits all for folks. And over the last years, I've tested so many different ways. Hey, we're going to go really aggressive on outbound. Hey, we're going to go really aggressive on LinkedIn and see what happens. Hey, we're going to go aggressive on, on inbound style things. We're going to experiment with paid ads. We're going to experiment with this. We're going to see how all these different things feel. And that's basically why one of the reasons why business is fun. Yeah. Because in the end of the day, like almost all these things are very low stakes. Until you get to a place where you're not producing enough pipeline, you're not producing enough leads. Sure. And then the pressure mounts and heads roll. No, but the pressure all just mounts to the CMO. So it doesn't mount to anyone else. Fair it's just not. you. That's all on you. It has nothing right. to do with that. <laughs> no, but I, but again, you're talking about it gets a little bit philosophical, but I built my particular company in this particular moment, because by the time you're listening to this, who knows when you're listening to this and things might be very different. I focus on having a, a sustainable feeling company that even if pipeline slows, the company stays in a healthy enough position. Right. That's part of my feeling about business. There are times in the past where it didn't feel like that, where it felt like we were spending a lot and we needed magic to happen or things would get more constrained to become harder. So I think that this also comes to what kinds of businesses people want to build and what kinds of businesses they want to run. And is the sales process being led by the kind of business they want to run? Or do they feel like they have to build a sales process to support a kind of business that they actually don't like to run in a way? You're literally summarizing the come to Jesus moments for virtually every venture back company over the last like year and a half. And the challenges in a shifting model of moving from growth at all costs to no profit actually matters. <laughs> Sustainability and not knowing where that next round of funding is coming from actually are, are a thing now. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of different kinds of business decisions and different models that most company founders don't really dig into. They don't really ask themselves a lot yeah. of questions about. I was talking with my team today. We had an all hands. And one of our clients, we have dozens and dozens, so it's neither here nor there, but one of our clients had a 50% loss in revenue in one month because their biggest client uh, decided to take it in-house. And 
I'm totally guessing. I actually don't know how science functions. My guess is that no single client has accounts for 50% of your revenue, right? No. So you've been around a while. I've been around not quite as long as you mentioned that you're, you've slightly more gray hair than I have. We've all seen that play out with our friends' businesses or businesses yeah. we've been involved with. And so you have to make a decision. Do I want to be a company that has many clients that each constitute a small percentage of the business? Or am I going to be a lopsided business where one big client dominates everything? Or if I am lopsided, how can I counterbalance that? Yep. And all this stuff leads back to your sales process and how you're going to use or abuse email. Because if you really are just whale hunting, it's a totally different sales game. It really You is. don't need to worry about email sendability and deliverability. Nope. You're, cra- you're saying, hey, there's 10 big banks that I want to sell to, and it's going to take me three to six months. You can do it in parallel. You don't have to do it in serial, but you do it in parallel to try to figure out the right person at these banks because I'm pretty sure what we have would really be interesting to them. And I'm, good, well, I'm willing to go to the gym. I'm willing to spend $4,000 on tickets to the JP Morgan squash tournament or whatever to like get in the same room with these folks. That's totally, totally cool. Yeah. That's your choice as a business owner. You don't have to be high volume, low cost SaaS. You don't have to be any of these things. You basically can choose any number of these different paths and by the way, benefit from the choices for any of those types of businesses that are much more flip the funnel upside down is how to get a meeting with anyone by Stu Heineke. Um, Yeah. What did you learn? What did you get from that book? That if you have the scenario where you're not going to play the volume game, there are so many creative paths to how to actually prospect effectively. And he catalogs like, just it's an idea book from start to finish. That's on cool. exactly all of those. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the things are very human and not very kitschy and not very clever. Some can be clever, but yeah. Cleverness is if you're in a clever style industry, be clever. Yeah. If you're not doing clever things, don't be clever. If you don't have the credibility to back something clever, don't do clever things. That's I always feel that I always feel that way. If you're a dashboard tool that doesn't have SOC 2 compliance, why are you sending a gift to the head of compliance at a, a giant banking institution? They'll Google, your, they'll Google you because they got a crazy gift from you that was cool. And then they'll be like, yeah. So it's like all the preparation, is it, the, is it right for you? Is it not right for you? Anyway, I think a lot, of, a lot about this stuff because when you're in a leadership position or in my case, I'm the company owner and founder, I've just seen so many decisions that I've made gone the way that I didn't expect yeah. and decisions that my friends have made have resulted in really excellent companies and then ways that they've screwed that up or ways that it got away from them or things that ways that have gotten away from me. And you got to think about these things. And I think cold email fits into this because once you are committing to some sort of sales path, a lot of things come with it. If you're going yep. to be, hey, we're going to go high volume, then you're going to have to really care about email deliverability, sendability. If you're going to do an ABM strategy, you're going to have to really care about deep ICP understanding and research and all the things that are entailed. If you want, if you really want to go whale hunting, you might end up with a software that you have two clients for. And every year at renewal time, you're sweating bullets. 
You're sweating bullets. Like we've all, we, you're laughing, I'm laughing, but we know people I know, who have yes. full software suites that support three clients, five yeah. clients. There was a famous story. I don't know if she, uh, this could be apocryphal, but I'll tell it anyway, because I heard it like third hand anyway. So if someone actually knows the story, they can put it in the YouTube comments or something. But apparently there was a compact disc in a little tin that, of Christmas songs. And someone had sold Walmart at some point, this little cute tin that had a compact disc in it of Christmas songs. And Walmart or someone like, I think it was Walmart, had a standing order for 1 million of these every single year. Hmm. So you can interpret this however you want. You could say some record distributor had a really great recurring business. But if that was the basis for their entire business and made a team of 10 people helping to get these things made and delivered to Walmart every year and Spotify's coming around. Yeah. It's maybe those still are sold. I don't know. Maybe Walmart still sells them. I don't know. But the, it's interesting to think, okay, can you diversify to Target? We talked to Target. They're not interested. Okay. Here you are. There's one procurement person that holds the keys to your business, yeah. holds the, they can, they pay for your mortgage. They pay for all of your team's mortgages. They that's better that's have a crazy. plan B. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope that person made a killing and, and it went on for a lot longer than they expected it to. And yeah. they built like a really awesome lake house for themselves made out of with a tin roof to commemorate it or something. I, I just, I love that idea, but that's not necessarily like a long-term business no. strategy. And it all comes back to what are you doing? If that person came to you and I and said, Hey, we have one client, it's really big. We have CDs in a tin. We need to go to every retailer in the country and figure out if someone else is going to buy this. That's a pretty stark change in strategy, but you can do an ABM strategy. You can do a really wide strategy. If you do a really wide strategy. You're really going to have to care about deliverability. If you do an ABM strategy, probably have to care about it less. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting. It's good, good oh, stuff. Speaking of interesting, this has been the most interesting discussion. And I thank you, Benny, for spending the time with us. <clears throat> for any of our listeners that want to continue the conversation, sure. connect with you, learn more about senders, where should they go? That's a good question. The website, senders.co, has a lot of information on it. You can check that out and read your heart's content. If you want to reach out to me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Benny Rubin, B-N-N-Y, I look like this. It's pretty much pretty accurate depiction of how I look. I post stuff really deeper, nerdier stuff, usually about email deliverability, which is useful if you're ever like, I wonder what Benny thinks about warming. There's something that I wrote about that and other things like that. You can also direct message me. You can send me an email, Benny at senders.co. Fan letters should go to my PO box. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Gifting an offline home address. <laughs> yeah. Just oh. send it to my management office. They sort them out. I share one with Harry Styles because we have similar <laughs> hair. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just being silly. You got me silly. But yeah, find me on LinkedIn or any of the normal. I don't really do Twitter very much because it makes me uncomfortable. But LinkedIn is a safe space. For now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks again. 